Hi, everyone. Welcome to San Luis Valley Great Outdoors GoCast. Today, we are here with Bethany Howell. Bethany, why don't you give us an introduction? Thank you so much for having me this beautiful afternoon, now that we're finally feeling like spring. So I am the executive director of the Rio Grande Watershed Conservation Education Initiative. Um, I also have another hat with the Rio Grande Basin Roundtable, where I act as their public education, participation, and outreach liaison. This is Patrick Ortiz. I'm the Community Engagement Coordinator with San Luis Valley Great Outdoors. And I'm Tierra Guerrinha, and I'm the America Vista and Development Coordinator for SLVGO. So, Bethany, we already know that you're not from the San Luis Valley originally. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got to the San Luis Valley? Where are you from? Oh, awkward. Um, so, I already uh, probably am showing my non-Colorado roots just by talking because I've been told my accent comes out a little bit. But I'm originally from Texas and I grew up in the hill country near Austin but moved with my husband about seven years ago here to the San Luis Valley. Kurt's job at that time was to be the outdoor coordinator for student life with Adam State with McDaniel as his boss. <laughs> so we can honestly blame Mick for bringing us into this little corner of Colorado, which I had no idea existed until we moved here. <laughs> you can blame me, I guess. Yeah. It was interesting. Kurt had been bringing like Texas Tech trips to the San Luis Valley for a number of years. So he'd kind of already fallen in love with the Valley. <laughs> Only take part of the responsibility there. Right, right. He, he was totally familiar with Alamosa. And it's funny because I had just started a new job with the development area at Texas Tech in the College of Engineering. And he just had mentioned that there was a job opening and his friend Mick had told him if he wanted it, he could have it basically. And so I said, okay, well, I'll go up and visit up there, but it has to have really specific criteria. Like it can't snow all the time because I'm such a Texas driver that I don't like driving on anything that is really snowy or icy. And it had to be affordable and it had to be, you know, all these criteria. And then we came up and visited in really one of the worst times to visit the valley. Um, it was the end of February. I mean, you got the mountains and all the beautiful sunshine, but nothing really growing or anything. And we both just were like, yes, this is the place we want to be with our kids. That's awesome. <laughs> Tell us about growing up in the hill country. That's a beautiful area. I, I haven't visited a whole bunch, but I've been down there two or three times, and I've always really enjoyed Austin and the surrounding hills. What was it like? Well, I like to say we were really close to Austin, but my hometown was not really like Austin in a lot of ways. If you've been to that area, you know that Austin's kind of motto is keep Austin weird, and it's kind of more of the progressive area of the state. But I grew up about 40 miles south of there, and it was still really rural at that time. And I grew up in a, in a pretty agricultural area. Um, my grandfather's ranch was about half a mile from where my house was. So we grew up riding our bikes over to my grandparents. We had had quite a bit of acreage to run around on. At that time, they had about 200 acres that they ran cows and goats and grew a little bit of some crops. So I, I had a little bit of a different experience 
growing up in the Hill Country than a lot of other people because I was really involved with 4-H and FFA. And so that's kind of why the transition to the Valley was, was not so weird for me because I was already really comfortable with that and comfortable around people who made their living off of the land and being part of livestock and things like that. So I grew up with a pretty small town, um, three sisters, and everybody else in my family is still in Texas, and I'm the only one who uh, jumped ship. Wow, that's cool, because you now, professionally, you know, you're running RigWiki, which is the acronym we all call it, but that's kind of interesting. So you grew up kind of in ag, and now you're leading one of the larger ag education, kind of water education programs in the Valley. Yeah, actually, my background is more um, from the professional side of things in communications and PR. I mentioned that I worked for Texas Tech with their alumni development office. I have two English degrees as well, so I really didn't, I'm not as science heavy in my background, but the heritage and culture that I grew up in was. So that transition for me from communications and PR work to conservation education was actually really not, it wasn't something that I, I didn't want to do at all. Um, I was actually really interested in it. And whilst it was an incredibly steep learning curve, I've been the director for about four years now. And the first couple of years were definitely drinking from the fire hydrant as far as Colorado water issues and the way that crops are grown here are so different from the way that they were grown in the hill country. So it was, it was a big learning curve, but it was one that I was really excited and happy to make because it finally felt like I was coming home in a little bit of a way, but also being able to utilize my professional skills that I learned along the way to help ag community show itself off. I mean, that's really what a large part of my job is, is to help kind of bust the myths around agriculture and help people to have a better understanding of where it is that their food comes from and why it's such a big deal that we support farmers and ranchers. Bethany, that's awesome. It sounds like really where you grew up and being connected to ag and your training in college has really come together to bring your success to RigWiki. It's kind of the perfect combination there. I like to think so. And you can tell you're passionate about it too, Bethany, because I think that is kind of a misconception a lot of the time is you think of industrial agriculture, but really, you know, farmers here in the valley, they are stewards of the land, stewards of the water, and really are kind of a prime example of kind of creating that natural resource management protocol that we should look to as leadership for our country and the West in general. I think especially in the West, as water becomes more scarce, people are having to pivot the types of crops and the type of managing practices that they're having to take on. Yeah, I, I really enjoy my conversations with the farmers and ranchers who are on my board or the ones that I encounter in the course of my work because they're very realistic about using natural resources sustainably and they, they don't have a masked agenda. They just want to be able to do their work because they honestly love it. And there's not a lot of people that get into farming because they're going to make a lot of money. They honestly do it because they love it. And being able to communicate that to the community and to school children is kind of me helping to address that communication gap between guys who would rather be and women, because um, there's a lot of up and coming and 
and people who have been part of the ad community for years who are women and taking what they're doing on a daily basis and kind of giving it to the rest of the community as a, a way of understanding how the San Luis Valley got to be the way that it is. Because unless you understand that heritage and that way that we settled this area, especially if you're moving in or maybe you're new to this part of Colorado, then it's really difficult to understand why the San Luis Valley has the particular flavor that it has. And so much of it is tied up in that ag economy. But at the same time, they're recognizing that there's other other people who enjoy the valley. There's people who come through to recreate. And I think there's a genuine desire to want to share resources as long as everybody's on the same page with their values. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like we've definitely seen that from the water community as these conversations about river use really begin to develop. You know, I don't know a whole lot about the various water basins across the state of Colorado, but ours certainly seems unique. Well, we have heard several times and in the course of my work with more statewide organizations and being part of the roundtable has given me a little bit more of a perspective into how the Rio Grande Basin differs from parts of the state and how we're similar to, to certain parts of the state. There's definitely other basins that are struggling with the, the ag slash recreation balance. But on the whole, the feedback that I have been hearing from other basins in particular is that ours really has a genuine desire to collaborate with each other and to try to hear each other, there seems to be a little bit of headbutting in other basins with those two entities to a point that it's very detrimental and difficult to get anything accomplished. Whereas here in the Rio Grande Basin, we have so many people that know each other, even though we're a huge area geographically, people from one county know people from another county pretty well. And so they're able to partner together and, and come to an understanding that's not coming from, I'm in this silo, you're in this silo, and we're never going to try to find common ground. But in fact, we have lots of programs like the Winter Flow Program on the Conejos River. That's a collaboration between Trout Unlimited, which is a fairly recreationally oriented group, but they're working with the Conejos Water Conservancy District to promote flows on the river during a time when fish habitat is really struggling. So that's just one example that I really love to use because to me it really just epitomizes the way that the Rio Grande Basin and the San Luis Valley operate. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So Bethany, can you tell us about some highlight moments that were outside that really just stood out for you and kind of affected your work today and your outlook? Well, I have to say that anytime I'm out with kids on a landscape, that's the meat of why I do what I do. The idea that there are kids in our valley who don't know very much about agriculture, they don't know very much about riparian corridors, or they haven't seen time. And those kind of landscapes can seem a little strange to people who are outside of our area, especially maybe bigger urban areas who tend to see rural kids as the ones who are getting outside the most. And that's just not been my experience. And so that was really eye-opening for me to start working with kids and programs and have them say, I've never been out on a potato field when they live literally less than five miles from one, but they've never actually explored around one or gone down to the Rio Grande riparian areas and spent time at like a state wildlife area looking for macroinvertebrates in the river and they live less than five miles from that river. 
So those kind of eye-opening moments with my programming has really instilled a desire to let other people across the state know that just because you're a rural person doesn't mean that you're as connected with the outdoors. And I think that's something that you guys are seeing as well and that we're trying to bridge that divide so that these youth in particular can grow up feeling comfortable in those outdoor spaces and then turn around with their own children and kind of start a pattern. And some of them are, a lot of them have been out with parents or grandparents. Fishing is a pretty popular activity, but really understanding how our watershed works as a whole, like with the forest areas down to the riparian areas, from snowpack coming down into the rivers and what that means for our agriculture, all those pieces that need to get tied together to be able to help kids make those connections in the place that they live. Because most of what we're trying to do is very place-based. It's great to teach kids about things that are happening out in the bigger world, but if it's not real to them about the place that they live, then how are they supposed to care about it? So making those connections for them and actually having a kid who says something like, wow, I, I didn't know that. I'd never been out here. I haven't done something like this before. Or wow, that was actually really cool, which was an actual comment that I got from a kid. And I loved the, the way that he put that phrase together. <laughs> those are the things that kind of keep me going. And I can attest to that, being that I was born and raised here in Alamosa, Bethany. I remember specifically taking a Birds of the West class in sixth grade and an archaeology class in sixth grade. And that was really the first time I was able to get out onto the Rio Grande in what is now really the Rio Inspire Trails and learn about the flora and fauna of the San Luis Valley and really begin to identify the things around me that I never really observed before. Sure, I had the sand dunes, but to think about like that people had been here for 10,000 years before and learning about those different cultures and the different points that they used like Folsom, Clovis and the type of game that they were hunting, that really kind of springboarded me to even when I went to Adam State and decided to major in physical geography. You know, those experiences that you're providing for youth now, I think, are going to play, pay dividends later for them in life as they begin to search for a career path or a field that they're passionate about. Oh yeah, it's super fun for me to, to talk to parents of kids at camp and have them say something like, oh, I was at this camp when I was a kid because we kind of inherited it from the 4-H. So this is our youth conservation camp that's for kids about 8 to 12 years old out in the um, Beaver Creek area near South Fork. And it's been in that iteration in some form or fashion for the last 30 years, starting with 4-H and then Rigwiki inherited it about 10 years ago. And it's just really fun to see that connection of parents who really cared about what was happening and had such a great experience at camp when they were kids that they want their kids to experience that. And I love being part of that chain. That's awesome, Bethany. I, I was one of those kids that never really went to a camp, but as a, you know, a young adult learning outdoor education and recreation, I worked at a lot of camps and I had no idea that it was such a thing like camps and the idea of camps and summer camps are passed down between parents and families. It's a really great tradition, I think. And I don't have kids, but something if I had kids, my kids would go to camps. <laughs> well, and it's difficult here in the Valley because we don't have a lot of opportunities opportunities like that. And so many summer camps are very cost prohibitive and they've grown to the point where it's literally a thousand dollars for a two week camp, which is very difficult for almost anybody anywhere, let alone the San Luis Valley where we experience such persistent poverty. 
So being able to offer a three-day camp that is a totally a break-even cost, we have a little registration fee attached, but that's solely for food and accommodations. And then we get grant subsidies to help us with the rest of the costs around that and being able to offer some scholarships. That's a little bit unique and something that I'm really proud of that we have really tried to ramp up in the last three to four years is the availability of camp for kids from less of a higher socioeconomic standpoint. And I did go to camp as a kid and I went to 4-H camp and it was wonderful and super fun. And at the time I had no idea how much work went into putting on a camp until I started doing this one. So definitely a shout out to everybody who does any kind of summer programming that lasts more than three days in a row. (laughs) That's awesome. You want to tell us a little bit about your roots, like family, where you're from? Sure. Like I said, I grew up in Marble Falls, and I have a really strong family heritage there, which has been a a little bit of a difficulty for me in particular, um, moving so far away because my, I'm actually a seventh generation Texan and I grew up on a family heritage ranch, which my grandparents inherited from my grandfather's father, which he inherited from his father, which he inherited from his father. My maiden name was Holland. And so we've had Hollands on that particular area for over 150 years. And my great, 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 great grandfather was actually the first white settler in our county. So I come from a really, really deep heritage, which I appreciate in talking to people here whose families have been here for generations, because I totally understand that. And that's the kind of heritage that I came from. And so that's been a little bit strange for me to realize that my kids are not going to be part of that heritage exactly, because they, they haven't grown up in the same place that I grew up. But that, that figures a lot into kind of who I am, is a, is a great appreciation for people whose roots are very strongly entrenched in a particular piece of land. And so I grew up in that area with my grandparents being really close, went to college in Abilene, which is where I met my husband. We both went to Hardin-Simmons University, and I started working there. I had a first kid when I was in graduate school and it's kind of kept moving west ever since. We went to Lubbock for a few years, which is where Kurt got recruited for Adams State was when we were at Texas Tech. So we've been steadily moving west since I was about 18, but I don't think I want to move any further west than this. (laughs) Well, let me tell you from experience, uh, once you get to the coast, you kind of want to move back. I can attest to that as well. (laughs) Oh yeah, I love visiting California, but I don't want to live there. Yeah, I love visiting Oregon, but I also don't want to live there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, being in a landlocked state is a little interesting. And and being from a state like Texas is funny because now I'm one of the first who gets upset if people aren't treating our area of Colorado as well as I think they should. And I'm the first to be like, ah, Texans, they need to clean stuff up. And my mom came to visit one fall and I was kind of griping a little bit about beer cans that I was seeing on the county road. And and she just looked at me and she said, you know, you're still a Texan. (laughs) (laughs) The funniest part of that is I totally forgot to mention that I was actually born in Colorado. My parents lived here for about five years in the early 80s. And I was born on the the Eastern Plains in Hugo. So the part of Colorado that not many people necessarily think about when they think about Colorado. And then my younger sister was born and my mom said, I'm getting the heck out of here. I hate blizzards and I'm done with this. I'm going back to where we grew up. And so she went back and um, told my dad he could come or not, but she was going to go. So he, being a smart man, followed. So he actually had worked for the Soil Conservation Service during that time. And I spent, you know, two years in Colorado, moved to Texas and raised there, came back 30 years later 
And my job is very largely supported and works in partnership with the NRCS, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, which grew from the Soil Conservation Service. So it kind of made a full circle in a funny way. That's really interesting. So really, you are Colorado. I like to tell Kurt that I, I have a few more years on him when I get to call myself fully a Colorado because I already had two years under my belt before. <laughs> born here. <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. Sometimes I do, I do admit that I just tell people I was born in Colorado and I leave it at that for a while if they seem particularly anti-Texan. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair. So Bethany, you got a story about the Valley that you might tell someone who's never been here before? Oh goodness, that was a hard one and I, I do tend to tell stories on the valley with my sisters in conversation with different family members. I don't have one in particular that I can think of at this point. I just usually tell people that the valley just feels like one big community, which is so strange to me to think about as an outsider. And once you've lived in it, you're like, oh yeah, this is just how it is and it's just part of your daily life. I guess one story, when we moved from Alamosa, which is where we had first moved to and lived for the first three years that we were in Colorado, and then we decided to move to Del Norte about four years ago, and my sister who lives in Austin was like, well, I guess you'll have to make new friends and, and all that, and how's that going to work with your job? And I said, well, no, I don't need to make new I mean, I'll make some new friends for sure, but I don't have to leave my old friends behind. I'll see them all the time. They, they're just, you know, 40 minutes away. And she was just kind of flabbergasted by that because she has friends that live outside of Austin about 45 minutes and she never sees them. And it was a really kind of strange concept to have to put in place of, you know, I can see people who live three counties away from me all the time and it's great. And it still feels like a community. And I didn't have to leave behind my friends in Alamosa just because we chose to live in another community that was in a different county. And my job, you know, takes me to all the counties and I get to interact with people so much from other communities. And it's, it's just a strange concept to explain to people who haven't lived here who don't know what that feels like. Yeah, you know, I, I hadn't really thought about it until you said that. But just thinking about our life in Eugene, we just lived on the other side of town of people and we'd go months without seeing them. <laughs> they were literally just like 12 miles away. But, you know, it was like a 30, 40 minute drive because of all the stoplights. Yeah, I think that the traffic thing tends to stop people. And we talked about when we moved that Kurt was still going to be commuting to Adams State, which we're on the other side of Del Norte. We're not even on the side that's the closest. So it still takes us 15 minutes even to get to Del Norte proper. And so he was going to have to commute a little bit more. But the absence of traffic and thinking about the number of people who just sit in their car and go two miles and it takes them that same amount of time. Woo, I could not do that. Yeah. Find yeah. some good podcast time on yeah. the drive that long, you know? <laughs> yeah, this is why this kind of stuff is really good. And, and a little plug for hopefully in, in August when we get to start our podcast for the Rio Grande Basin Roundtable, there will be no excuse for people not to listen to this kind of stuff because we all know we're driving a while. That's right. <laughs> yep. What's your favorite place in the SLV? This is difficult for me because I, in general, do not have favorites about anything other than my dog is my favorite <laughs> feature. But I don't even have a favorite food. So I was kind of trying to figure out, well, where's my favorite place? Because it kind of depends on my mood and the season and what activity I'm involved in. But I just kind of keep on going back to my favorite place is actually sitting right next to Bennett Creek, which runs through our property and is right in our front yard. And when the aspens are leafed out, which they're starting to bud right now, and we've got hummingbirds that are starting to come in, and the creek is flowing really high because we've got that spring runoff that's starting to happen, there is literally 
there really no place that I would rather be than sitting next to my creek with a nice cold beer and a good book and just sitting in the sunshine. Well, that sounds awesome, actually. <laughs> if you know where I live, you're welcome to join me. It is a little spot of paradise. Yeah, it is. <laughs> You've been with RigWiki now for five years? Oh, almost. It'll be four years in June. Four years in June. So what do you see yourself doing in the future? Is it related with RigWiki or do you have aspirations for something else? <laughs> That's such a hard question to answer because if you had asked me that question seven years ago, when I was still living in Lubbock, I could not have foreseen being in the San Luis Valley doing what I'm doing. I had absolutely no context for that. And that kind of seems to be how my life is. I, I don't always know what I'm going to end up doing, but I can honestly say the last four years of my career with RigWiki has really solidified in me a desire to stay within the water community and to be part of what is coming for Colorado as a whole, which is the idea of aquifer sustainability. Where are we going to go with that? What's going to happen with climate change? What's going to happen when we're trying to address the gap between the water that we need and the water that we're actually going to have. And all of those questions in some ways I can't see myself stepping away from in the next five years. So in some form or fashion, I definitely see myself somehow involved in those questions. Whether that's with RigWiki, I don't, I don't know. I can't foresee. I can honestly say that right now I, I love where this organization has taken me and where I feel like I have been able to help it grow to an organization that's part of that bigger conversation around water and soil health in the valley. You know, I would honestly feel like I would have, I will have done what I need to do if I step away at some point and it's able to continue with the mission. That would be my biggest gold star moment, I think. But for myself, I definitely, I love feeling connected to what's happening with the land and water here. So and somehow, however that happens, I will still be probably a thorn in people's sides in water meetings. <laughs> That's awesome, Bethany. So, favorite non-outdoor pastime? <laughs> that was a hard one, too, because if I can do it outside, I will do it outside. So, reading, like I mentioned, I, I love to do outside more than I like to be inside. But at the end of the day, which is so funny if you know my husband and know what his job is and that a large chunk of it entails being outside for multiple days at a time. But I personally love the moment when, okay, the day is done and now I can get to go into a nice warm bed and sleep inside. So <laughs> that's my favorite indoor activity is going to bed. <laughs> that's awesome. Honesty, I love it. I, I don't need, and we've tried so many different thermorests, you just cannot even believe. Every camping season, it seems like Kurt has found a new model, something that this time I will love to sleep in a tent with, and we just have not yet found it. <laughs> You're doing some good product testing for them. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I just need to be a little off the ground. Well, I'll tell you what, since we've gotten the truck camper, I can't really tell you the last time I slept on a thermorest on the ground. It's been a while. I feel like if you don't have to, why do it? And I do love to backpack and I can do it for a few nights and, and just really kind of get into that headspace of, okay, we're outside. This is what it looks like. But I'm definitely not the person who's going to be hiking like the Pacific Trail for multiple weeks doing that. Yeah, I feel like I should probably try to make it a point to sleep on the ground this year at some point. It's been a while. <laughs> I can't even do it next to water sources anymore because, you know, they seem soothing, like they would put you to sleep really well with their white noise, but 
We slept near a waterfall a few years ago, and I got up about 14 times during the night. I just can't hear it. Yeah. When we went to Hawaii a few years ago, they have these little frogs there. I think they call them croquets. And they make that sound all night in unison. And uh, it was really funny. Like, I wasn't prepared for that. I did get used to it and could sleep through it eventually. But it just kept thinking back at some point, you know, this would have never bothered me. But for whatever reason, then that chime just would not get out of my head. I couldn't sleep the first two or three nights at least. I don't know if it's a mark of getting older once now that I'm way past 30. I just, my body loves to be in a, in a warm bed. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, so this is our like finale question that we've been asking everybody. Have you had any supernatural experiences in the SLB? <laughs> That's also a really funny question. And I'm very glad that I'm on the podcast first so I can scoop Kurt's response because when I asked him this question, he had the same thought that I did, which is the only kind of supernatural experience that we both had at the same time was when we were driving home from Colorado Springs and we had just hit 17 when it you know it gets into that that flat part of the the valley right outside of Villa Grove kind of area yep. Yep. and it was Thanksgiving weekend so it was a very cold clear sky and the kids were sleeping in the back and so it's just Kurt and I in the front seat and we see these streaks of light in the sky in front of us and I thought oh, that's a falling star, but that's a really weird falling star that it's continuing to travel. It's not really falling. And Kurt was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and his background is he used to be an ROTC and has flown airplanes and is very familiar with aircraft and what it looks like in the air. And he said, that is not normal aircraft. That doesn't look like a military plane. And that's definitely not a falling star. And it's some kind of trail lights that is going in this particular pattern that he was convinced was not part of a military operation, which is what we usually hear in the Valley, like, oh, well, you know, that's the training patterns from jets or things from air bases around here that are using the San Luis Valley, but he was convinced that it could not have been some type of military plane. So that's the closest we've come to some type of supernatural experience is seeing some weird lights that he swears were not military. Was it four lights moving together or was it a series of lights going like consecutively? I can't remember at this point. It's been at least six years. It was when we were pretty new to the valley. So I can't remember exactly the pattern of lights. I just remember thinking, that doesn't look like a falling star now. Okay. Yes, six years ago, it had probably been pre-SpaceX, which um, people tend to see in the sky as part of the country, uh, apparently. Yes, I have heard about those. And we did see one outside of Phoenix a couple of years ago that we were really rooted out by and then did some research. And it turns out it was SpaceX. Kind of launch but this was yeah it was um probably about 20 2013 2014. wow yeah and you were on the cosmic highway yes which we did not also really know about at that point either so we we didn't have those preconceived notions of oh this is the ufo watchtower coming out you know we were still really new to the valley i think that we had moved in june and that was our first really big trip out of it was that thanksgiving Well, there you go. I tell you what, it's really interesting our responses to people. Like some people who've lived here for a long time and have seen nothing, but there are always a few people who've seen something that they weren't sure about, you know? Well, we'll just keep life interesting. I don't know a lot about anything like that. So I'm just going to go with, there's probably something out there that I have no ideas out there. That's fine. Yeah. I kind of feel the same way. (laughs) Well said. (laughs) 
Well, Bethany, thank you very much for joining us today on the GoCast. It was great learning a little bit about where you're from and how you got here and the work you do in the Valley. Really appreciate you taking the time to be with us and tell us about the work moving forward. Thank you guys for having me on here. I always love the opportunity to talk about conservation education and my work with farmers and ranchers. And if anybody is interested in learning more about what we do, especially schools or after school groups, if you're listening to this and we're actually post COVID-19 restrictions at some point, can always check out our Facebook page. We also have an Instagram now, thanks to Hannah, who is awesome with that kind of stuff. And our website, which is www.rgwcei.com. Org. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bethany. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Bethany. Wonderful Thank afternoon. Thank you. You too. Too.